Uh, hello, folks. Welcome to episode three of Desert Rain Community Radio. Today, uh, David Morrison and I get into the idea and concepts around Celtic Christianity. It's a two-part series, so tune in next week for the second half. Before we get into it, I would like to thank Diego for his uh, editing and mixing magic, Eric Bozeman at Star City uh, Studio Productions, and those drums you hear in the background of the intro and the uh, uh, outro are Monk Drums, brought to you by Jacob Nedia, Greg Steele, and Donnie Kanoy. And uh, to find out more about Desert Rain Community, find us at theruin.com or on Facebook. So without further ado, let's get started. Uh, we're here, Desert Rain Community Radio. I'm here with uh, David Morrison. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you doing today? Not bad. A little allergied up. I like, hear that. I like that crisp... Uh, Deep voice yeah. you got you got for us gives me that Clint Eastwood thing going on. Yes, sir. You smoke a bunch of heaters last night or what? No, I just have allergies. <laughs> <laughs> so tonight, uh, this evening, uh, one of the things, and I think we're just going to jump right into it. Uh, we talked about it uh, earlier in, in some of the earlier episodes about this idea or this concept of uh, Celtic Christianity, and. Um, sort of how that has has been a part of not only your your story your your prayer story but more importantly um sort of how it's connected uh to desert rain so last week we we talked about the ruined and and that concept and idea on how that shaped Desert Rain community and and so maybe you could start us off by just uh giving us insight of how you came across or how you started to be interested in this idea of, of Celtic Christianity. Yeah. Thank you. I, I guess it was. You're welcome. <laughs> I guess I made that awkward. <laughs> I, I, you know how the saying goes, you know, certain books find you. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think in the late nineties, a book called how the Irish saved civilization by Thomas Cahill kind of found its way to me and and it really opened up a whole vein, if you will, a vein of emeralds. Yeah, like to, we talked uh, about in the first episode. Right. And and so it, it just piqued my imagination and my uh, way of praying, my way of seeing the world, the way I process my own faith and Christianity. Um, yeah. And I know people say don't judge a book by its cover, but what about that title or the cover of that book really – really caught your interest in those those first few moments of uh, contacting it. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely over overstated. You know, the Irish didn't really save civilization. Right. If they had, someone else would have. I mean, right, yeah. And did so anybody really need to save Western civilization? <laughs> so, but it just told the story of, of, of the Irish and it, you know, being part of that diaspora and then lost in my own family genealogy Mm. Uh, somewhere in the southwest of the, of the American desert, uh, just finding a, an identity that I didn't know I had. And, okay. And so it was personal on, on one level, and then it grew out to be more of a universal experience and worldview. 
Well, and, and it's funny how we can sometimes encounter something deeply personal. Right. And that's how we, uh, how ends up how we, um, shapes how we enter into community. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so I definitely felt a home there and still have, and, and it's, and it's beyond a cultural right. thing. And, you know, that, that can be a sensitive issue, uh, these days, especially when people hijack it and make it about race and things like that. So it's much, much more far beyond a, a cultural identity. Well, in in this context, it's very much about a spiritual right, identity. Exactly. If you, I mean, if you can even really put those two together, right? Um, but so, uh, f- sort of from that starting point, uh, I know I've I've spent some time attempting to research Celtic Christianity, and it's such a huge umbrella, and even. Um, you know what exact what does Celtic even mean? <laughs> yeah, know? and even that term is controversial. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's such a blank. It's like saying North Americans or South Americans. Yeah. It's there's no such thing as a Celtic race. There's no such thing as a Celtic people in, in that sense. And so it's just kind of a, a blanket term for uh, a, a, a specific time period, mm-hmm. which would be pre Middle Ages. Uh, and it would probably involve the people inhabiting, coming and going on the, the British Isles, basically. Ireland, uh, England, uh, Scotland, Wales, the Isle of Man. So that's kind of – historically, that's what we're talking about. Right. And we're talking about a Christianity that – it wasn't a separate Christianity by no means. It was, it was connected to the greater church. But because it was disconnected from the Roman Empire – which was falling at the time, crumbling. Uh, it kind of was able to tweak it to its own cultural flavors. And c- could you? I, I also know it, it's um, a lot of its foundation was found even within the Eastern, yeah, absolutely uh, Christianity. And, and so, could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, if, if you read anything about Irish history, and probably anybody's history. They're great borrowers of mm-hmm. other people's cultures and other people's – and so it's the same thing. And so while the uh, Eastern Empire uh, was crumbling, there were loads of refugees coming from there to Ireland, many monks. And so it's uh, so what we would call today uh, Eastern Orthodox theology and, and emphasis on monastic experience. Uh, mystical experience, right? Uh, definitely comes from there, and then the Irish borrowed that and adopted it and took it in its own, uh, uh, you know, variations on a theme. Yeah, it evolved it into its own right own place and own own. Time. Even what they call Celtic knotwork, uh, which is very popular in art. That's Byzantine art. That's not oh, okay. I didn't know. Yeah, that. that's not specific to Ireland or. I mean, they they loved it so much that it right they adopted identify right yeah, exactly yeah. and so so that's kind of what we're dealing with. And so, with with that being said, as we uh, venture into this, what are what are some of the different principles or uh, themes, if you will, that that have that make Celtic Christianity uh, or or that are sort of um, North stars, I guess you would say, right. within that that version, that flavor of Christianity. 
Well, I think for us, we were looking for models of community. Mm. And we were currently dealing with uh, what I would call a revival uh, mindset. And when you say we, we're, we're shifting back to the, 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 the core, desert ring. Yeah, the core right. group that was founded it. And so we realized that that charismatic evangelical revival mentality could not be sustained on a long-term basis and still be uh, true to itself. And even though you guys had sustained it for years at that point. We had. and uh, but, but in closer, authentic community, I, it just wouldn't. At least for us, it right. wasn't going to work. And so we were looking for models, and and we found some, but uh, others we didn't really understand very well, uh, particularly the, the peace churches. I've come to an understanding since then, uh, Quakers and mm. Mennonites, Amish, uh, you know, they were very foreign to mm. our core group, and so... Well, especially here in the Southwest. Right, exactly. The, those, those groups... Uh, did you call them peace religions? Right, pacifists. Yeah. And, uh, I didn't understand pacifism at the time, believe yeah, it or not. They're, they're Maybe like, that's an Irish thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fighting Irish. Hey-o. Exactly. Uh, but Both yeah, I think, high school. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, those those the Quakers and Mennonites and such are much more uh, prevalent in the Northeast and, and right. North Central, whereas down here in the Southwest, it's not yeah. nearly the same. And I went to a, you know, when I was at Cathedral High School, home of the Fighting Irish in downtown El Paso, we went to Mass every Friday at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And so what, what are the Irish doing in the middle of uh, the Mexican uh, region yeah. of El Paso? Well, that doesn't make sense, but there it was. And... Um, and so, so we found a real model there because we wanted more of a monastic model, but we wanted more monasticism light, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, from the historical books we were reading, the Irish uh, early monasteries were uh, very integrated with families. Mm. They were busy places. Um, you didn't have just clerics there. Right. Um, you, had, you had everybody there. And we still see ourselves. We saw ourselves then, and we see ourselves now as as not professional monks. We're amateurs, mm-hmm. and amateur by the the literal meaning meaning you do it for the love of it. Right. It's not a profession, and so that's so it was a it was a good fit for us. Right, and and uh, through through I know one of the things that struck me when I first came to Desert Rain uh, was um, not only the the community portion of it, but more, more so the hospitality. Right. Yeah. That was um, a big thing. And if you, so if you could sort of a, one of the, the quotes that I remember um, you and Marsha sort of greeting us with is, is thank God you're here. Oh yeah. Right. And if you could let it just, we you know, why the hell would you say that to three complete strangers as they walk right. up to your front door? <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> we're we're amateurs, <laughs> we're naive, uh, and even that is stems from even earlier from Irish monasticism to mm-hmm. from Benedictine uh, monasteries in the east again, and so so they had a professional uh, monk whose job was called the the porter, who would uh, and they probably still do at these monasteries. Mm-hmm would stand with one foot inside of the monastery, one foot outside. And as people came, he would greet them in, in uh, Greek, uh, you know, thank God you've come. 
And there's it's just such a subtle thing to say. Mm-hmm. On one hand, it could be just a uh, a religious, non-meaning kind of nonsensical mm-hmm. kind of thing. But on the deeper meaning, it, it means uh, you've come here. God has sent you here. Um, you may be a Viking who's coming to murder us all. Uh, but you'll just make us martyrs, so thank God you've come. Uh, or you may be coming as a stranger to disrupt our lives in some way, and we need that. We're, we, we've we grown complacent. We've grown sleepy, spiritually mm-hmm. speaking. And so so maybe God is sending you to wake us up. Um, or maybe you're a disguised angel, as the Book of Hebrews would say, and, and we're going to give you hospitality. And, and that's so deeply rooted in the Scriptures and... Uh, Semitic uh, cultures, right, uh, and, and in the Jewish tradition, from starting with Abraham. Well, and uh, even even thinking back to the the Hebrew scriptures and and just the way of life is if you came across a monastery, if you came across a a tent in the middle of the desert, that might be the difference between you living another day right, and, yeah. and you dying in the desert. Yeah, depending on the, this person's hospitality. For sure, yeah, it was life and death. It was serious business, and so hospitality was the greatest uh, obligation, if you will, the greatest, uh, uh, for lack of a better phrase, uh, moral character mm-hmm. of, of a person and a group in a small city and a village. Was did, did you practice that? Did you practice hospitality? Extremely important. And it, and it's it's this might be a rabbit hole, but. It seems as though that idea of hospitality, at least the high priority yeah. socially of hospitality. One of the highest. Has dwindled in our current time, time, you know, the 21st century, where you can go to any town and just get a hotel room or a motel room. Right. And uh, there's a restaurant around the corner where you can go buy some food. Um, so you, you're not really depending – on other people right. to invite you in their house. Um, definitely in the Western world. I, definitely in the Western yeah, world. Yeah, we, we in the Western world have bought into the uh, the uh, illusion that our lives are separate. Or you might have said it right the first time, the hallucination. Yeah, yeah it's really a separate. hallucination. Right. It's, it's, it's hyper-individualism is a madness that has come upon the Western world and – and you can see it really manifested in the COVID crisis now. Mm. It's it's tearing communities apart right. because of hyper individualism. The, the 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 higher priority of my personal rights over my responsibilities to a greater community. To the community. That's. Uh, I actually had a conversation with my my grandmother lives in a an assisted living facility, mm. and she I go visit her every Sunday, and we sit outside. There's some nice chairs and stuff, and in the shade. And and a few weeks ago. Uh, she wanted me to come up to her apartment hmm. and under, you know, she, she said she was having problems with her phone and she may very well have been having problems with her phone, but I also know my sister goes there often and she, my sister's allowed to go inside. She has hmm. clearance as, as my grandmother's caretaker. I do not. Hmm. Um, and she said, well, why don't, why don't you want to come in? And I said, well, I don't, I don't know if I've come in contact with COVID. I don't know if I'm carrying it. Uh, as as the, the research and data has shown, COVID in a nursing home or assisted yeah. living facilities is a death sentence for a lot of likely. people. That, for, you know, it's high percentage of, of the deaths have come from those specific environments. 
And when she questioned me on it, my, my go-to was, well, that's what we do when we live in community. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I had to stop myself because it sounded very fucking pretentious, right? <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, Grandma. That's not what I meant. That's what I do when I live in community. You know, I had to, I had to turn it around and make it about me because being raised in this hyper-individual yeah. mentality, it's really been um, – Almost like a deep program. I mean, that's a little drastic, but it, it's – I've had to be conscious and aware of my decisions when it comes to community. Yeah, um, for sure. It's a high learning curve. It's tough. Yeah. It's tough and I don't – you know, I don't um, look down on or, or disagree with anyone that's bought into this, this hyper-individualism because that's, no, that's what we see on a day-to-day yeah, it's basis. it's disease. One of the diseases of – Modern uh, living. And I think especially too in, in a highly industrialized society, in, in poorer societies, it's once again talking to someone that's been doing – living in Haiti for a couple of years and she said that it's community living is just – that's just living. Yeah, it's survival. Yeah, they just – that's how you, you go about a day-to-day basis. So – well, so to sort of get back on track of this idea of hospitality and Celtic within Celtic or the Celtic Christianity themes, you know, I know one thing that was profound for me, like I said, is is being welcomed by saying, uh, thank God you've come and the authenticity behind it. Yeah, you have to actually believe that. <laughs> right. There wasn't, you know, if you guys if you guys would have said that half-heartedly, it would have been like, okay, what Yeah. What kind of weird weirdos have I rolled up on? <laughs> yeah, it was kind of cultic. Um, so some of the other themes that that come from Celtic Christianity, uh pilgrimage, soul friend, the thin places and and just the contemplative lifestyle. Um I'm going to leave this one open to you for this this uh, rabbit hole. But which one would you like to – which one of those sort of jumps out at you tonight? Well, I, I think the – because we were in that uh, signs and wonders revival mentality, mm-hmm. I think the idea of a thin place uh, really set us free to a larger worldview than we had but still maintaining, not going into the rationalism of anti-science and wonders, uh, if you will. Okay. Uh, and so like really, over-logical. Right. Because, we're, you know, often uh, we're presented with just two, uh, mm-hmm. just look at our political system. Or, right. Or, or, we're uh, presented with the illusion again of two. Right. Either or. And so it's either God is available to do uh, to be involved and do signs and wonders in the world today, or God is not mm-hmm. available to do that. And 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 the one was killing us, and the other one just didn't seem true either uh, from our experience. And so, so believing that the signs and wonders were possible was ex- killing you. Expecting it all the time in every right. situation. Uh, was not sustainable, at least for us. Well, similar to what we talked about last week with the uh, the podium breaking in half. Right, exactly. And then it's like, okay, where do you go from there? Yeah. You know, and that's part of just uh, not to get too far off the topic, but, you know, one of the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness was to be spectacular mm-hmm. in a religious sort of way. 
and to uh, and so he he uh, circumvented that, overcame that temptation by not performing a miracle and and choosing to be ordinary and mundane rather than spectacular and amazing, and so that that's very telling. And and is it your estimation from your your years in and around the different? Uh, being an observer of, of religious life that in a lot of cases it's the opposite where you're striving for the miracles? Yeah, there's much more striving for sure. And, you know, and it is a tension because uh, if you have no expectation for such things, then such things probably won't happen. So there is that saying somebody said somewhere. I might have said it. I don't even remember. Uh, the miracle wasn't so much that uh, Moses, uh, that there was a burning bush in front of Moses. The miracle was that someone in the wilderness noticed that there was a bush burning. burning. Bush, right. So there needs to be an awareness and an anticipation, uh, but not a striving. And so, so that's a third way. And the thin place uh, concept, which is uh, uh, basically uh, the, the old Irish saying, it's a very common saying, uh, the usual distance between heaven and earth is three feet, but at a thin place, it's much, much thinner, the veil between heaven and earth. And, uh, and really, the, the idea is to teach you that you find a sacred place, and that sacred place teaches you that the whole world is burning with the presence of God, not just at church and the church meeting, but, but at, in the entire cosmos. So it broke it open wider for us, and uh, broke it out of a church meeting. Well, so, I, also, I also think it, at least from my perception of that that idea, is that you also need to be paying attention. You do. You need to be awake. Yeah, because yeah. you're not going to just – well, that's not true. You might stumble into a thin place, but if you're not paying attention, you could just as easily miss it. Yeah. You could stumble into it and miss it. Um, Unless you're in some sort of crisis or you're just someone that is one of those rare people that is – just a spiritual seeker, mm-hmm. uh, like Jacob in the in the Old Testament. I think we mentioned that in previous podcasts. Um, um, the patriarch uh, Jacob in Genesis. You know, he's in a crisis. He's on the run. He's running from his brother who's about to murder him because he just deceived his his parents. And uh, it's an awesome story. <laughs> and uh, and he's asleep in a field, and he uses a stone pillow to fall yeah. asleep. And and then he has a dream of the the spiral ladder, if you will, of of uh, the divine ascending and descending. And then he wakes up and he says, "I, I didn't know uh, God surely was in this place, and I didn't know." And so he named it uh, Bethel, hmm. uh, the place of God. And then years later, he has a similar experience, and he names the place El Bethel, which is the God of the place of God. So in other words, he went from the place being sacred to, no, this it's the God of the place of God. It's much wider. It's much bigger. It's everything. And so. Well, and I, it's hard for one, or it could be hard for one to wrap their mind around that, especially, you know, I, I think we've touched on, you know, you and I both grew up in, in the Catholic church with somewhat st- different experiences in the sense that you were very um, enthusiastic about it. And I I was far more lukewarm. And 
I think there's a lot of people, not just in the Catholic Church, any any denomination. There's it's not it's not limited to one. But you get caught up in this original religiosity and dogma yeah, absolutely. within that, and then it, God becomes very small, very tiny. Yeah. Um, or your God doesn't become that. Your perception of right, whatever right, it is yeah. becomes that. Um and it becomes such a small box. Um and it's almost like a box of dynamite because if you offend this small idea of God, then it's hellfire and brimstone with you, right? Yeah, you For lose your place in the community. You get ostracized. And so how do we break that that idea up? How do we introduce people to this idea of thin places of the God of the place of God? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think all we can do here is help those who have experienced a thin place and how to to uh, affirm people in that and uh, not really fight the institutions. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they, they there's a lot of speculation that the early desert fathers and mothers uh, left the cities uh, in protest against uh, the the church becoming Roman uh, and the, and the symbol of the church, the cross becoming. A symbol of the the Caesar's uh, victory sign, you know, and right, um, and so they so in protest they went into the desert, and but uh, protest alone won't keep you in the desert, and so you, you can't live off of protest alone in in a wilderness place or in community, and so you have to have things that will sustain you and affirm you and. And so we don't we don't take it upon ourselves to fight the institutions and um, but there are but there are people who are wounded and hurting right because of those institutions and they feel without so we we we're for them and and I guess I guess the question might have come off a little bit I wasn't necessarily talking about taking down the institutions or fighting the institutions yeah. but more uh, cultivating that that soil cultivating. Uh, hospitality, cultivating community, so that when those wounded people do show up, right, uh, there is a, a safe place for them to land. Yeah, and it's always been a thin line. Uh, we're in a great time now compared to times. I mean, Saint Francis of Assisi came very close to uh, being tagged as a heretic and, mm. and banished forever. In fact, I believe uh, shortly after his death. Uh, the Roman Church uh, banned all uh, mendicant or poverty-oriented mm. communities. After that, they didn't want any more of that. They didn't want any more saints telling them, uh, being a witness against their opulence and right. pursuit of luxury, and in the name of Jesus, the soft you know? life. Yeah, yeah. So it's always been a thin line. Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross. John of the Cross was tortured by his own uh, group of brothers. And, uh, so because that, of because of his outlooks, right on Christianity, exactly and, and for the, the immediacy of God's presence mm. uh, and his experience of it, yeah, was threatening. So Meister Eckhart, same thing. And so I, I guess um, to sort of paint a, a picture, we're talking about this thin place in, in the abstract, but. Um, Maybe you'd be willing to share a story of, of when you've encountered a thin place in your life and, and, and felt uh, felt that nearness to heaven. Well, I, I guess 
I could connect it to the connection of Irish Christianity, Celtic spirituality. Uh, it's probably the early 2000s. And I was uh, much more um, zealous, if you will. <laughs> and much was, more in your face. <laughs> yeah, very. Uh, we were the God Squad. And, uh, and I was near the end of a 40-day fast during Lent. And, and it was terrible. So a terrible experience. I was just hungry and tired and exhausted. I was teaching high school too, so uh, God have mercy on those students. <laughs> well, hang, angry that. Morrison yeah, showing up so day in just, and day out. Or just unplugged Morrison. Uh, and so near the end, I think it was already Holy Week by this time, near the end of the fast. And I had a sense that I, that, that I needed to go to... Uh, the grotto where that I took care of in my childhood okay. at the parish. Right, you talked about that in yeah in earlier so, the grotto specifically. So I drove, you know, the the forty minutes there and went there, and I sat down, and there were there were sat down on a stone bench, like I was waiting for a for something. I don't know. I, I definitely for had Jesus. anticipation, but I didn't know what. And so to my left, there was another stone bench, and these two women were having a conversation with each other and sitting next to each other. And in the middle of that, uh, and I knew it was in my imagination, but my eyes were open, uh, a man in a uh, monastic cloak, it was off-white color, came and sat next to me and spoke to me about the problem that I was having on this fast. Mm. And, he, and he basically said something like, uh, Son, the key to fasting is to not be aware that you're fasting. You become the fast. The key to prayer is to not know that you're praying, but you become the prayer. And the key is to not seek fire, but you become the fire. And then he got up and walked away. And and I've come to interpret that over the years as uh, as an as a an invitation to this Irish monastic uh, mm-hmm. lineage. Were you already living in Chaparral, in Desiree, no. when this happened? So this was before that. Right. I was living on the far east side of El Paso. Right. Teaching school and pastoring a church there. And and so that was a very – so that was a thin place experience, mm-hmm. if you will. And Absolutely. Um, and like I said, I, I don't believe literally like St. Uh, Colomb Kill came and visited me in, in, in a literal sense. It was a vision. It was a mm-hmm. – it was a, an, awareness. A, an imagination, an awareness, but much more than imagination, like like for entertainment, for, for Disney, but a, but prayerful imagination that could cha- shape and change the direction of your life, and right. it did for me. So a thin place it was. Yeah, and, and one that came to mind from a thin place that I've encountered or that I did encounter, and it actually connects with one of these other themes that maybe we can we'll sort of springboard into next. Uh, I've always felt very uh, – growing up – so I grew up in the desert. I grew mm-hmm. up in Las Cruces, New Mexico, uh, not too far from from your homeland, El Paso. And uh, But anytime I've, I've been to the beach mm-hmm. and been to the ocean, uh, there's, there's a um, a connection there. Uh, a relief that happens, um, and it, those that sort of thing happened even before I was really aware of how I, I can remember 
had times in, in uh, my early 20s where I would just feel overwhelmed with life and, and just disconnected from the whole entire world. And, and this little voice in the back of my head would say, well, just get to the beach and everything will be okay. And sure enough, I would go, you know, I'd drive to the beach and sit there and it even could just be for 10 minutes, 15 minutes yeah, yeah. And, and everything would be okay. And, and, um, so about, well, exactly three years ago, I was on the, uh, the Camino de Santiago, which is a, a pilgrimage across Spain. And the pilgrimage is, is specifically for the, uh, to go to the city, uh, of Compostela. And when I got there, I was very underwhelmed. It's, it's kind of touristy. Um, there's, there was a bunch of, um, uh, what's the, the stuff they put on the outside of buildings when they're fixing it and, and doing construction on it. Um, I can't remember the word now. Scaffolding. Maybe. A bunch of scaffolding oh, yeah. around the entire cathedral there in Compostela. And so I stayed there a couple of days and it, it was meaningful and, and useful. But then the next stop is is some people – most people go to Finisterra first, which is right on the ocean. And the other place is, is Muccia. And usually they go – people. most people go there second. I decided to go there first. And um, as I'm walking – up over this hill and and see the ocean there was a very profound movement within me um, i'd been walking for about just over a month at that point and this this peace and this calm and this um just excitement just an excitement though that comes from from deep within your bones an ecstatic feeling almost, but not not where you see people screaming and jumping around right. and, and some it, it's it, it's more moving than that and and just realizing as I'm walking up to this to the ocean um, that everything was okay right and everything that maybe I didn't understand everything that had happened on that journey that pilgrimage yet but that more would be revealed. And, and I went to mass that night. There was a, a, uh, a church built out of stone right on the water. Um, I still have a picture of it today that I look at every now and then and just going to mass there and, and feeling connected with the other, I don't know, there might've been 20 other people in that church that night, but just that, that like, Oh, God is here with us in this, in this makeshift community um, that the majority of us will be here for a day or two right. and, and go out amongst the world and take whatever we've learned with us, you know, and just it's powerful having that, that taste of heaven was incredible. And you can access it later and it can right. access you later. So it's, it's just a, so a thin place is powerful like that. Yeah. And the beautiful thing about that, because it's sort of a popular or it's not sort of, it's an extremely popular pilgrimage, is that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people have made that journey before I did. Yeah. And For centuries. For centuries. And for centuries, it will continue to happen. Yeah. Um, and however many people after I, have, I, I was sitting in that church, in that thin place, um, more people will come and have not the same experience because everyone has a different one. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so 
one of the themes here is is pilgrimage and journey, and so maybe we can mm. we can roll into that and and sort of how did how did that theme come out of Christ, uh, Celtic Christianity from your understanding? That that one actually might have been specific to Irish Christianity. This idea of of uh, they called it the peregrinado, uh, the pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. And and so they would literally get into these what we call koraks or uh, leather lined boats with no oars, oh, wow. jump in them, and for the love of God, allow the spirit and the and the the sea, which was no different. There was no difference to them, you know. Correct. Yeah, uh, they're one and the same. Even today, I think they're one. And yeah, the same. I would take them to that shore. And and they were always known in the Middle Ages as the the wandering the wandering Irish monks, who would come and you know wander into a village and bring their books, um, their humor and their, you know all that kind of stuff. Their humor and their anger, <laughs> uh, both important traits in life. Yeah. So this idea of of spreading out, of uh, casting yourself to the wildness of of the world. Um, and so, so you can do that without actually taking a pilgrimage. And that was part of the idea as well. There's some, there's some, uh, monastic writings in Ireland from Ireland that would say things like, uh, Rome, why would you want to go to Rome for a pilgrimage looking for God? Uh, God ain't there. Right. <laughs> uh, if God, God. doesn't take, if, if God, if you don't take God with you on the, the journey itself, then you're not going to find God in your destination. And so there's, you know, a profound meaning in there um, and to approach life that way. And I know it's a very, especially in the age of social media, uh, everyone says life is a journey. Uh, so it doesn't really mean anything. Well, no, the other one is everyone who wanders isn't lost. Yeah, they love that Lord of the Rings <laughs> line. And, and it's like, no, you just really do need to go to school or get a job. Uh, <laughs> well, that's part of the journey, right? Like that, that yeah. is part of the, the wandering. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's yeah. So it's a willingness to try new things. It's a willingness to uh, to live in kind of a spontaneity, spiritually speaking, as well, mm. um, and to uh, listen to those inner promptings of of the heart uh, rather than the rational. Uh, you know, God has a plan for your life, kind of thing. That that was always a problem with with my small group of friends. As we grew up hearing God has this big plan for your life, but God never seems to tell you what this plan is. Right. So, Not outright anyway. And so when bad things happen to you, oh, well, you miss God's plan somehow. Or if you do something wrong, you miss God's plan. And so what do you do now? You know, And, and so it's just, it's just a terrible spirituality to live that way. Uh, so instead of – so the, the, the pilgrimage theology, if you will, the idea of pilgrimage – Invites you to uh, embrace everything in your life, and uh, and believe that God is a collage artist rather than a paint by number artist. Uh, you know, preordained numbers that He's going to paint by ordained colors. No, it's it takes a snapshot of the worst moment of your life, and that makes itself into a greater collage mm-hmm. image. It takes a picture of their greatest moment. And that gets up in the picture too. Yeah, so, and it might even become the anchor of that picture. Exactly. All right. And so that's kind of a, 
it's a very freeing way to see life and scary for people. Well, I think too the um, one of the things that that uh, is lost or maybe misunderstood about a physical pilgrimage is it's it's just a a micro version of your life. Exactly. Anything you do or learn or encounter on a pilgrimage is just what you should be what how you should be encountering life anyways. Yeah. Whether exactly. it's like you're saying the spontaneity of it, um, embracing the mundane of it, um, embracing the strangers that you come come in contact with, who you might you might walk with them for two or three days, uh, you might walk with them for ten minutes and never see them again. Mm. Uh, you might walk with them for a week and then lose them for a couple of weeks and then encounter them again um, as totally different people. Exactly. You know, two two weeks um, is a long time to evolve and become, uh, I don't want to say a greater version of yourself, but just a different version of yourself. And, you, you know, however that evolution may occur. And one of the, one of the things I'd like to bring up at this point too is – Pilgrimages, you know, across oceans or across countries isn't accessible to everyone. Right. And, and what I love about Desert Rain is you guys have, have brought a labyrinth here, which is a pilgrimage. That's right, yeah. And so um, if you could maybe how – did, how did that come to be um, part of Desert Rain? Yeah, like a lot of things out here, it was by accident. Because we're just stumbling forward, <laughs> right. and he, he <laughs> finds you. His book finds you, and you're just blown away by it. And and so, if I remember correctly, uh, a small group of us were uh, at a conference in Albuquerque with uh, Father Richard Rohr and mm-hmm. Father Thomas Keating, and we went to the Center for Action and Contemplation, and, and yes. they had a labyrinth there. And so I walked it as a tourist. Basically, a spiritual you know, tourist. Yeah, I was a spiritual tourist, yeah, I've and done that. Uh, and was just my attitude was very shallow about it at the time. I was like, "We got to get us one of them labyrinths," <laughs> and uh, didn't really realize how profound they can become. And so, just like a sacred place uh, teaches you that the entire cosmos is sacred, uh, a pilgrimage like that, just walking a labyrinth, going on your daily walk, going on a an ancient pilgrimage like you did, uh, those are those are small trips that are to teach you that your life is this trip, your life is this journey, and mm-hmm. uh, and so so that's kind of what the labyrinth uh, is designed to do, and and it's a, and it's a prayer of, or a form of prayer to yeah. get out of your your thinking and your planning kind of mind, your uh, control centers of your brain. And just to allow motion and the physicality of prayer, to listen to the crunching of your feet on the ground and to feel the earth beneath your feet. Uh, Some people try to walk our labyrinth barefoot, and I I recommend against it, but uh, the desert is not kind. Right. (laughs) But they do anyway, those hippies. (laughs) (laughs) And the uh, labyrinth here, uh, what – I know you – the – Getting a labyrinth was inspired through the center of action and contemplation, but the actual shape of the labyrinth. Where, yeah. where, what, what, what was that? Where, where was that um, borrowed from? Right, and again, I, I think 
it was for practical reasons. We only had a certain amount of space because we, uh, the great designers that we are, we built the wall in front of it first. <laughs> and so we only had certain certain dimensions so at I, that point. Uh, but I, what it became in the end was what we would call, what labyrinth enthusiasts would call a modified Chart Cathedral, which is Chart Chart C H A R T E S. I believe it's pronounced on in English on paper. It looks like Chartes. Okay, but it's in it's a cathedral in uh, France, mm. and it's one of the last remaining of the great uh, medieval labyrinths. Cathedrals used to house labyrinths within them. Okay, uh, in the mid- medieval period. And then, as the uh, age of rationalism kind of became uh, the flavor of the day, those the labyrinths began to disappear. There wasn't enough room for them, right? You need more practical space. And <laughs> what is this thing doing? That here? kind of thing. You need to do uh, discursive prayer only, so meditative prayer, uh, rational prayer only. None of that asking, motion. Asking for signs and wonders. No, no, so you no can, more. So you can record them. Yeah. The uh, I don't know if I ever shared this story with you, and and it just came to mind as as we started talking about the labyrinth. But uh, while I was on the the Camino de Santiago, I was having a really bad morning. I, I just woke up in a really terrible mood, and um, while I was there, I would I would do uh, meditation every morning before I, I would get out of bed. I would sit silently for about an hour, and it seemed like the longest hour got out of bed and was just, just irritated. Oh. And it's probably about 10 o'clock in the morning, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. No, it was, it was probably nine or 10 in the morning. It was still kind of cool out. And I came across a miniature labyrinth that was painted on a, a concrete uh, top foundation. And it was, very similar to the uh, labyrinth here, similar design. I don't know if it had as many circles, but um, very similar in, in the end, the way it ended. And I walked, I was like, put, you know, took my, I don't even, I might've left my backpack on, but I, I walked the labyrinth, you yeah. know, and, and really entered the labyrinth. Didn't, was, wasn't worried about the fact that I was irritated or, um, and when I got to the center, you know, and I probably stayed there, stay, stopped and prayed for a little bit and then walked back out. And my attitude, my outlook on life in that moment shifted 180 degrees. Mm. I, I felt connected with Christ. I felt in the moment. I, you know, I had a big smile on my face. And as I was walking it, uh, desert rain came came to mind, came to my heart. It was it was a reminder of this of this oasis in the desert, so to speak, and um, and it just it, that day was completely shifted. And the only reason I knew what a labyrinth was was because of my encounter here with you all and and the um, things you had taught me and, and Jacob had taught me about the the labyrinth and and wow. its its meaning and and symbolization symbol. Uh, um, but yeah, that, that totally, totally connected. You know, I was somewhere in the middle of Spain and you guys are all the way out here in the middle of New Mexico and there was a spiritual connection oh, there. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 That pilgrimage of the heart. 
I mean, the heart is so small, but that journey is so long, you know, Mm -hmm. so I can connect across worlds. Well, and I think just to revisit, you know, that, that idea of community. Yeah. You know, I, I had built a community with, with you all and the Steels and the Nedias um, prior to, to going on, on that. Um, I mean, one of the big reasons I was out there was because of my, my, my time spent here at Desert Rain at the community mm. meals and things of that nature and, and the friendship you and I had built uh, specifically, um, but not in isolation, you know, obviously the friendships with the other people in the community. So just that heart, like you're saying, that heart pilgrimage, that heart connection. Um, yeah, such a, that's what life is all about, really. Mm-hmm. And, and I like the openness of it. You know, you could be a, you could be a, a physical, literal traveler mm-hmm. on pilgrimage, or you could be a pilgrim of the heart as well, and you never go anywhere. Uh, but yet you've traveled everywhere, you know. And so that's that's the powerful idea about it. Well, and I think that's the important idea because some people are so um, anchored and grounded wherever they are, wherever that might be, that they have no inkling or desire to leave. And it's not from a place of fear. No. It's from a place of connectedness to where they're at. Yeah. And some people are the opposite. They're they're called out. They're drawn out. They're um, some of them are running, maybe, um, but then sometimes that that running teaches them, yeah, about that pilgrimage of the heart, which is a part of the the tradition of that. You know, they they would often say these Irish saints would would be looking for the place of their resurrection, mm. so they'd wander until they found that place, a certain land. And they would have a sense of feeling that, yes, this is the place where I'm to live and die and be resurrected at the end of the age. This is my place of resurrection. Such a powerful idea. It's an incredible idea. Yeah. And and having to really listen to that Christ light within to know when you've come to that land and you've come to that spot. Yeah, there's a wildness to it and a spontaneity about it. Well, my friend, uh, that's about that time. Uh, we still have a couple more themes, uh, in the, in regards to Celtic Christianity that, um, I think we can pick up on for sure for the next, the next one. Um, but for all those following along at home, uh, community, hospitality, pilgrimage, um, and those thin places, um, Watch, watch your life this week and see, see where those things come. Uh, and if one of those really jumps out to you and you feel called, look, look for where that might be. Um, notice where those things might be in your life. And so uh, would you, you got any parting words for us today, Mr. David Morrison? No, anyone listening, thank you so much for listening to Chumps Like Us. It's just a, <laughs> such an honor. Yeah. Thank you. Grateful for your, for your time and your ears and thank you once again.